Hey, this is Evan Jackson, Video Production Director of New Life Church. Thank you for joining us today. I pray that today's message will not only challenge, but encourage and inspire you to see God's purpose for you. Enjoy the message. I want to welcome those of you who are here for the first time, man. We are so, I hope that your experience here is warm. I hope your experience here is uh, encouraging. Um, We try to take the K-Love motto, positive encouraging. No, I'm just kidding. There's probably some kind of legal copyright to that. But the idea is we just want you to feel like when you walk through these doors, you've come home. And that's really what what, uh, we want this place to be. It's a place of of, uh, belonging. So today we're going to study Noah. Now, when I first decided on the the nine different people we would be talking about, I came, I knew Noah was going to be in it from the very beginning. And I'm like, "This this is a throwaway. This is easy. I don't even have to prepare for this one. I've been talking about Noah since forever. And God said, <laughs> oh, you stupid. Because I started preparing this, and it went left, right, up, down, all over. And today, it's very, very different from where I started. But I am thrilled to talk about Noah today. So the big idea is this. Despite man's natural descent into depravity, God kept his promise and provided a way of deliverance through Noah. The biosphere two. The biosphere two. Now, the biosphere two was a closed system experiment in Arizona back in the 90s. And the whole point of it was to do the experiments necessary to uh, provide the science for a Noah's Ark type situation if man had to leave planet Earth. So the concept was that, you know, if you're going to leave planet Earth and you have to go to another planet to, to live, you have to be able to build a biosphere in order to sustain life on another planet. Okay? In 1991, a crew of people were sealed into the biodome too. For, two, for a two-year mission. Now, this is different than the Polly Shore movie, but the Polly Shore movie was based on this, and I'll tell you why. Okay? Early on, they had problems. Once they sealed that sucker up, they realized that the O2 levels in the biosphere were rapidly dropping. Um, they were not able to sustain plant life or animal life. It was die off, a lot of it. They had a hard time providing enough food in that sphere to sustain the mission crew. And they really started to lose a lot of body weight. In other words, there was trouble in paradise. What do humans do when there is trouble in paradise? We do what we always do. We fight. We fight. The same happened to the Biosphere 2 mission. The crew went all Lord of the Flies. They, they broke up into two factions that were against each other and uh, ultimately led to the failure of the Biosphere 2 experiment. Now, there's a second mission attempt in March of 1994. Now, they worked out the bugs, right? Simple. It lasted only six months. 
due to dissension among the crew, which resulted in two members sabotaging the closed system of the biosphere too. I mean, it just messed with their heads. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the reason this spirit was called the Biosphere 2, anybody guess? Because Biosphere 1 is Earth. Earth is a closed system. And Biosphere 1 is the Earth. Now, as we well know, there has been trouble in paradise. And humans do and have done what humans always do and have done. We, we fight. So much so that at the time we get to Noah, there's a real problem. Now, I wanted to try to break down in a visual way the scope of this. So bear with me. This is going to get a little bit college classy, but I have, some, I have a digital whiteboard here. Okay? Now, this is counting forward, not backwards, so understand it's not... It's B.C., but it's not, you know, we're going from zero. Zero being creation, okay? And we have Adam. Adam lives 930 years, okay? And we have all the way to Noah and the flood here and the death of Methuselah. If you can see that. I'll try to move around so you can see, okay? So from the time of Adam to the time of the flood is about 1,600 years of time. 1,600 years of time has elapses between the time of Adam and the time of Noah. Um, and in this time, we have things that happen. In the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve. We don't really know how long they lived in the garden. There's no indication of how long they lived. We don't, even, we, we don't think they had children in the garden. We don't know for sure. There's a lot of questions around that. The fact of the matter is the Bible is not clear about it, okay? So we're going to go from the fall basically being zero. We don't know how much time before. We're going to go to the fall. And at the fall of man, there was a promise, God's promise, right at the beginning. Genesis 3.15 says this. Now, if you're in your, in your Bibles, open up to Genesis because we're going to stay right in the first few chapters of Genesis and you could track along with me very easily. Not everything's going to be on the wall because of the timeline. Genesis 3.15 says this. I will put enmity between you, meaning the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this concept is that the descendants of Adam and Eve will one day confront the evil of the serpent. And though he will injure, the serpent will ultimately be destroyed. And we know the serpent is representative of evil, of Satan, of all these things. So this is a promise of the Messiah from very early on in chapter 3 of Genesis. Then we have a progression. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden and they have children that are recorded. The story of Cain and Abel, where we see the first account of violence 
in the biblical narrative is right about here. Somewhere in that space. So very, very early on, we have the first act of murder, probably even earlier than that mark. But it's the first act of murder. Now, skip over to chapter 4. And midway through, only the fourth chapter in Scripture, we see violence and polygamy are becoming not only normalized, but celebrated. But chapter 4 ends with a touch of hope. Let me read it to you. Genesis 4, 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Now, I want you to focus on this. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. That sentence, okay, right down here, is right at the about the time of Enosh's birth, we put that right there. At that time, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. This denotes a systematic worship of the God of creation. This is our first understanding of a religious practice of some sort, a systematic. Uh, Cain and Abel, that story, we have Cain doing something that God did not approve of. They may have Abel doing something that God did approve of. It was kind of like a little bit willy-nilly, not, not, not to set up. Okay? But by the time of Enosh, there is a people who start to call on the name of the Lord in very specific ways. Okay? So this is important to the narrative. Now, remember what they're called. People who what? Call on the name of the Lord. That's going to be important for later, so put that in the bank. They're worshiping God. They're having relationship with God. They are, quote, walking with God. Seth's great, great, great grandson, Enoch, was so close to God that Scripture tells us that he was translated into glory without having to taste death. Wouldn't that be nice? Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, for God took him. This is good. This is good, right? People are worshiping God. People are walking with God. They're having relationships. It's, it's so good and palpable that people are just being, boom, translated. That's a good thing. So how do we get from here in the story to the story of Noah 1,400 years later. A 1,400-year span of time between the time when people were calling on the name of the Lord and Noah. Well, let's look at it, okay? Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. This is going to be the main portion of our text today in Genesis chapter 6. It says this, when man began to multiply in the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them. The sons of God, remember that phrase, sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were attractive. So now we have our answer. It's the lady's fault. Guys are like, amen. We can't resist them. It's impossible. No, what does that mean? The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. Who are these sons of God? Now, these sons of God, there's a big debate over this. Some say they're fallen angels. Some think they're righteous, a righteous bloodline. Scripture actually, I believe, Scripture actually gives us the answer of who, who these people are. The sons of God are the ones who call on the name of the Lord. It's going to get there eventually. There we go. The sons of God are the same as those who call. Over 1,400 years, there was a group of people that lived on the earth that called on the name of the Lord. The first time Christians are called Christians in the Bible is in the, in the city of Antioch. Before, they were, before this happens, we were just called people of the way, God's way. And it wasn't until Antioch, because we talked about Christ all the time, Christians talk Christ, 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 Christ. Everything was about Christ that the, the people in Antioch said, those Christians. I believe the same thing happened here. They were calling on the name of the Lord, and they became known as the sons of God. Now, how do I, why do I think that? Well, I think that there's a, an interesting thing in Scripture. They are the ones who called the name of the Lord, and they took their wives, go to the next verse, and they took their wives. The sons of God took the wives of men, to so the women of men, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. Right here, is when God says, no. In 120 years, the flood's coming. Okay, he said, no more. So what is this? What is this whole thing? The sons of God went to the women of men. This is uh, intermarried and aligned with those who did not call on the name of the Lord. They intermarried and they aligned with them. They departed from the worship of God. Had their departure from the worship of God had grave impacts on the pre-Diluvian world. When the sons of God leave the worship of God and give themselves over to the culture of this world, it has grave impact. This was a time of great men who were of great renown. And now we're going to catch a word here called the Nephilim. Not, this is not Big Bird's best friend. That's Snuffleupagus. Okay, this is the Nephilim. Now, many people believe that the sons of God are actually the Nephilim. I disagree. And it's in the text here. It says, the Nephilim were on the earth on those days and also afterward. Now, who was afterward? Just Noah and his sons. Okay? Now it says, so the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and after them. What days? What days are we talking about? The days when the sons of God came to the daughters of man and bore children to them. 
It's a describer not of who these Nephilim are, but when they lived. These were mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So during this 1,400-year period, there's these men of old, men of great renown. Men, and what do men do? They build what? Societies and kingdoms. And we know when there's trouble in paradise, those kingdoms do what? They fight. Which will bring us eventually to the next sentence. But I want to talk about Nephilim for a second. The Hebrew word Nephilim is disputed as to the meaning. It is commonly believed to have stemmed from the, the Hebrew verb root nephi, which means fall. The word Nephilim has been taken to mean either fallen, as in sinful or apostate, or in active sense, listen to this, one who causes others to fall. Now you're starting to get a picture of who the Nephilim are. They're not some angelic beings that came down and married human women. That doesn't make any sense to me. These are people of great renown. Let me give you an example. Gilgamesh. Anybody ever heard of Gilgamesh? Gilgamesh is a legendary, historical, maybe, demigod king. Now, at the end of, of, of uh, Gilgamesh's story, Gilgamesh lay dying. And the narrator says this. The heroes, the wise men, like the new moon, have their waxing and waning. All will say, who has ever ruled with might and with power like Gilgamesh. As in the dark months, the months of shadows, so without him there is no light. Does this sound like they're deifying a human being here? Oh, Gilgamesh, you were given the kingship. Such was your destiny. Everlasting life was not your destiny. Because of this, do not uh, be sad at heart. Do not be grieved or oppressed. Listen to this. This is, this is crazy. He has given you power to bind and to loose, to be the darkness and the light of mankind. This is a deification of a human being. He sought, in the story, he sought to gain eternal life by his own activity in life by his own conquest, by his own knowledge. The story of Gilgamesh sets him up as a secular Christ-like figure, or in other words, a fake Christ. And this was happening in the time when, the men, of God, when men began to call in the name of the Lord. There was this period of 1,400 years where there was this spirit of anti-God in the land. Men were setting themselves up as God-men and falling and causing others to fall. That's why they're named the Nephilim. So it has less to do with the, the, the poor ladies that are spiked out in this statement and more to do with this concept of uh, when, you, when you would marry somebody, you would 
take that culture as your own. What, what brought Solomon down? The alliance with paganism. Not just the fact that he had a whole, you know, thousands of wives, but the alliance with paganism. The, what's the word? Compromise. This is the process of humanity or mankind trying to attain godhood by their own efforts and by their own might and strength. This is the spirit of Antichrist that we see all through Scripture right up to the very end. To the last page, we see the spirit of Antichrist. We have a mythical record of these God-men and ancient texts such as Gilgamesh. But we also have them, what? What does the Scripture say? Afterward. Through the stories of history and in fiction, such as Nimrod, the one who desired to build a tower to the heavens, the Tower of Babel, the, 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 uh, the, um, the pharaohs, they considered themselves God-men. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian and the Persian, all these leaders considered themselves to be God-men. Caesar was set up as a god. You could pray to Caesar. They had, I've been there. They had a, uh, there's a temple in Rome that's still there. You can go to it today. And it was the temple of Caesar where people would make sacrifice to a man. And then most famously, the Antichrist that is to come. We don't have a name for him yet. But they're all the same thing. And it was back before the flood, this pre-Diluvian age, where there was a conflict between the men who call the name of the Lord and these Nephilim that caused men to fall. And then we get all the way over to Noah. I'm sorry, that's not a whole lot of time, 1,400 years. There's like, I mean, we talk about popula overpopulation. There's not a whole lot of people out there at this time. I mean, they're, they're reproducing like rabbits. I get it. But it's still, the earth is not populated like it is today. These people are leaving the worship of God and following God-men. The spirit of anti-God or anti-Christ has been at the heart of human suffering and depravity from the very beginning. Now, let's continue. Verse 5. All that to get to verse 5. Now, when the Lord saw that, human, uh, saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. That's how far we fell. That from, from, the, from the beginning of Enosh, when people called on the name of the Lord, now every inclination of the man's heart is evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. So he decided to wipe out all of mankind. Wait a minute, he can't do that. Why can't God just start over again? Because he made a promise. He made a promise to Eve that said one day, your descendant 
will crush evil and sin. The Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals created, uh, creatures that crawl, and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Oh, yeah, right, promise. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. How does Noah become the hero of this story? By just continuing to be called a son of God. There's nothing special about Noah. He's not a, a hero in the Disney sense. He's just a guy who is calling himself and lives a life as a son of God. That's interesting to me. That's interesting to me. He doesn't lead a revolt against evil. He just abides in God's presence. And what happens? So many times I think we feel that we have to do God's job. Do you guys ever wonder why the weapons of our warfare, the armor of God, there's only one offensive weapon? Everything else is shields, helmets, breastplates, belts, shoes, and then we got a sword. And what is that sword? It's a book. Let's try it. Come on, come on. See, how, see how much damage is done. I believe the reason, and this all kind of filed in my mind this week, I feel like the reason why the weapons of our warfare are typically defensive is because God don't need our help. He can fight his own battles. Our job is to not compromise, is to fend off the world as it tries to attack us. We feel like we have to get on social media and blast everybody for every bad thing that they say. Just stop it. Please stop it. You're actually making things worse. God can fight his own battles. He don't need you. He wants you. Not for what you can give him, but what he can give you. Peace, help, hope. Right? He wants a relationship with you, not a foot soldier. He wants a child, not a foot soldier. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. In order for God to keep his promise to humankind to one day crush the head of the serpent, he had to preserve a son of God. He had to preserve a son of God. He had to redeem those who call on the name of the Lord while judging the anti-God spirit in the world. Noah was the conduit by which God kept his promise to provide deliverance to those who call on the name of the Lord the sons of God. Romans 10, 13 says this, for everyone who calls, ah, here we go, told you to keep that one in your pocket. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall do all the saving. Nope. Call on the name of the Lord, will be saved. How pathetic has it gotten that in 1,400 years, there was one man, even his kids were messed up. But one man 
That's it. Man. John 1, 12. But as to many as received him, then he gave the power to become the sons of God. It's the same words. We're still the same family. It's the story of God is from Genesis all the way to Revelations. It's the same thing. They were sons of God before. They called on the name of the Lord before. And we're to do that today. It's the same story. You don't have to be something special. He wants children, not foot soldiers. How does this apply to me? You're like, okay, great. We got digital whiteboards. We got arrows pointing at stuff. We got all that. Who cares? How does this come home to me this week? Well, Matthew 24, 37 says this. For as were the days of Noah, the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What does that mean? In the last days, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Before God comes, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. So what does that look like? Now, we know in the, from the Old Testament, it says they were filled with violence. Everybody, their hearts were corrupt, all this stuff. But over in... Second Timothy, we get a, a better description of what it was like. Verse, uh, uh, Second Timothy 3, 1 through 5 says this, hard times will come in the last days. Remember what Jesus said? The last days will be like the days of Noah. And this is what happens. For people will be lovers of self. See if there's any correlation to now. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, Disobedient to parents, that doesn't happen in here. Only in the other room across the hall. No. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, inconsolable, excuse me, irreconcilable, slanderous, without self-control. Whoa. Brutal. Without the love, without love for what is good. Traitors. Reckless, conceited, here we go, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. I believe that last sentence sums up all the other ones. Why do I say that? Because I believe that these things, says holding on to a form of godliness, but, not, but denying its power. That is talking about church. And what I believe is that all these things in the last days are not just going to be happening in the world, but they're going to be happening within people who have crosses on the front of their buildings. We're going to get to the same place where we've compromised so much that there's few who are truly sons and daughters of God. Maybe we need to rethink what it looks like to actually be a son of God. Going to a church means very little. You can have a form of righteousness, but you can deny the power of it. You can go to church and still be all these things, self-lovers, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, un 
uh, uh, ungrateful, mm, unholy, unloving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, without love of, of what is good, a traitor, a reckless, conceited, lover, lover of pleasures rather than lover of God. You can still go to church and do that. What does it look like? What does it look like? It, what does it look like to take it to the enemy? To be on the front lines for God. I'm going to tell you, it looks a lot different than this guy has always been practicing. Let me tell you what it looks like. Turn back one chapter in Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 22 says this. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who, what? Call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Lord, forgive me. Can anybody say amen to that? Lord, forgive me. I spent too much time focusing on what the world is doing and saying and being and all these arguments and discussions going back and forth between the right and the left and the up and the down. This has had nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Why? <laughs> you know why. They breed quarrels. I mean, is this stretch right or is it right? Come on. That's all we're doing in our culture today is we're fighting each other. Listen to this, 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Can we just scratch that part? Can we just, like, you know, redact that place? Patiently enduring. What does that even look like? I'll just be honest with you guys. Confession time. I'm not a patient human being. There's not. My wife and I recently had a visit with our youngest daughter. She's in kindergarten. The principal of the school. Because they were teaching, they had a book read in the classroom that um, had, being delicate here, had information on it that promoted like gender decisions from a kindergarten point of view. So we went in. We went and talked to him. And my wife, I was, I was preaching this sermon to my wife this weekend. She's so lucky. And she's like, well, so what, how does that particular passage apply to like people's lives? Like, what about the situation when we went into the public school office and talked to the principal? Well, I said, one thing, I wouldn't have gotten so angry. I wouldn't have gotten so, like, defensive. Are we not supposed to push back? That's not what it says. It says this. Keep reading. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. It doesn't say you can't correct. It just, it's a matter of how you do it. It's, what do your moms always say? It's not what you say. It's how you say it. 
Your mom is a sage. Sage wisdom from mama. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. And that is so true. It's not about giving. But here's the thing. We must resist, but not attack. That's what we're called to do, to patiently endure evil, correcting with gentleness. So as hard as they come at you, you cannot respond in kind. You have to patiently endure that evil. What? I don't, know if, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like I'm getting uh, attacked from every side, every, every issue, every um, thing I have control over, I don't control over nothing, things I have influence over or I'm responsible for. I feel like I'm getting attacked by the enemy. Yes! How am I supposed to deal with that? I cannot, if I want to be what God has called me to be, I have to patiently endure that evil. So right now, at this moment, I currently resign my... No, I'm kidding. Because I don't know how to do it all the time. I'm not good at it. Can I be, can I be honest? But I see it in Scripture, and I know it's something I need to work on. Can anybody relate to not having a good handle on something, but seeing it in Scripture and saying, oh, man, I need to work on that. Now, what will this do? Think about this. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God, here's what will happen if we do this. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's how we It's not how the world does it. It's different. It's, so what is our job? Our job is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord. That's you. That's me. That's us together. That's what we're supposed to be pursuing. That's what we're supposed to be doing. What does the Bible say? The New Testament says, love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you are sons of God, that you are people who call on the name of the Lord. By this they'll know, and maybe, just maybe, they might be convicted and come to the, the knowledge of the truth that will save them out of the enemy's snare. Whoa, that's good stuff, hard stuff. I'd much rather have a, uh, a battle plan. God, you give me a battle plan, I'll go out there. Sword in hand, Uzi in the other one. Give me something. I want to do something. I got you. So here's what you need to do. Pursue righteousness. Peace, love, hope, mercy. Gentleness, patience, kindness, long-suffering. No, no, no. I want to do something. Actually, that's a mouthful. That's a lifetime's worth of something to do pursuing those things. So often we think it's our job to fight the Antichrist in this world. It's actually not our job. If you've read the end of the book, the armies of God come back with God, come back with Christ, to fight against the devil 
And we don't do anything except sit and watch. It says, Christ, from the words of his mouth, destroys them all. He doesn't need us to fight his battles. He wants sons and daughters, not foot soldiers. Actually, it's not our job to fight the Antichrist. That's God's job. Our job is to submit to Christ and resist Antichrist. Submit to Christ and resist Antichrist. To resist compromise, that leads to apostasy. To be completely sold out for Christ. Can you be counted as one of those from the days of Enosh who called on the name of the Lord? That's what we should be. To be compassionate and kind to those who are ensnared by the devil. By doing so, we may just lead them to the knowledge of the truth that brings repentance. How many people had really awesome success with arguing with people on, on Facebook? I mean, every day I'm arguing with somebody, and they're like, you know what, you're so right. I was wrong all these years. Thank you for your wisdom. I am a new person because of your comments on my post. And no, it doesn't happen that way. You live by the sword. You die by the sword. Here's the, here's the, here's the harsh part. We can maybe bring some people to the knowledge of the truth by the way we treat the world and the way we follow Christ, but flip it around. If we do not live the way God wants us to live, no matter how combative you are against the spirit of Antichrist, you may drive a wedge between people and the truth that bring them to the repentance and salvation. Think about that for a second. If we don't heed this word, not only will we be completely ineffectual, because it's not our job to fight Antichrist, it's our job to pursue God. Not only will we be completely ineffectual, but we may actually do damage to the kingdom of God. You can be Noah. You can be Noah. You can be a person, a normal person who holds fast to calling on the name of the Lord. And through you, you might be the mechanism of deliverance so that God can fulfill his promises to other people. Or you can compromise and follow after the Nephilim those who cause others to fall. Lord God Almighty, you don't need us, you love us. You can fight your own battles. You can send floods. You can destroy your enemies with a word of your mouth. Lord, our job is sit, literally to sit and be in awe of all you are, to draw close to you, to call on the name of the Lord the way you want us to, not the way we think we should, to be called 
sons and daughters of the Most High God, to learn what it looks like to love, to be patient, to be gentle, to be kind, to treat the world the way, with the love that you have for them. You said, for God so loved the world that he gave himself for the world. He didn't come to fight against it. He came to give himself up for it. God, help us today. Help us, Lord, to be like Noah. Imperfect, but faithful. Imperfect, but pursuant of you. God, help us to be the conduit for which your grace and mercy can save people out of the snares of the devil. Change our hearts. Give us a vision for what it looks like to live as sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you do me a favor? Just close your eyes for a second. I'm telling you, folks, this one, this one messed me up this week. This one cuts across David Sangster's grain. How many people today here would say that this particular way of thinking about what it looks like to act like a Christian kind of messes with them a little bit? Raise your hand. Just, just kind of messes with them. Yeah. yeah, okay. I'm not alone. Thank God. I want to pray for you as I've been praying for myself this week. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now. Lord, you've obviously revealed something to us today that impacts the way we look at our own Christianity. God, I pray that you would empower us to see in the next moment where we are tempted to go on the offensive, Lord, and maybe even be offensive. Lord, that you would give us grace and patience and love to correct with gentleness. Not to compromise, not to um, agree, but Lord, to do it in a way that you can be proud of, that you can bless. Lord, bring people into your kingdom because of the way we treat people. Lord, help me. Help my friends here today, my brothers and sisters, in Jesus' name. God bless. Have a great week. I hope I didn't mess with your week too much.